This is Van Color. Rapid antigen tests for COVID-19 offer test results within 20 minutes, unlike PCR tests for COVID-19, which can take one to three days for results. British Columbia received 3.2 million of these rapid antigen tests for COVID-19, while for comparison, Alberta, a smaller province by population, received over 11 million rapid antigen tests. Around 700,000 tests out of BC's current supply of rapid COVID-19 tests can be used at home, but they are in large packs of dozens that would need to be repackaged for individual use, which would require labor, although Alberta got smaller packages, and Nova Scotia began repackaging their bulk packs into individual kits back in September. In BC, you can't buy these rapid tests at pharmacies for some reason, although other provinces have them available at drugstores and even liquor stores. And while other provincial governments are widely releasing these rapid tests, often at no cost, British Columbia will only widely distribute rapid tests mid-January, after the holidays, with no plan for making them free to everyone. Is this a big deal? Did BC drop the ball on rapid COVID-19 testing? Well, our guest today has been voicing her concerns for quite some time now. She is the BC MLA for Kelowna Mission, the former official opposition critic for health, and a current BC Liberal leadership candidate. She's in town. She's in studio. She is Renee Merrifield. Renee, so nice to see you. So nice to see you. I'm very confused, though. These rapid tests for COVID-19, you can't buy them in stores or pharmacies here in BC, and they will be widely available in mid-January, but after the holidays. And now with the Omicron variant, you think that it would be really important to, to distribute these. So what is happening? Did BC actually drop the ball when it comes to COVID-19 testing and rapid testing? Absolutely. Absolutely, BC dropped the ball. Uh, you know, starting December 8th of last year, so exa almost exactly a year ago, I started asking questions about why rapid testing wasn't being used more widely. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, world leaders like Dr. Michael Ryan from the WHO saying test, test, and test again so that you're not flying blind. And it really is a, a form of empowering your citizenry to take that responsibility to keep each other healthy. And then you see, you know, Dr. Tam coming out just a couple days ago saying we need to deploy the rapid tests right. and every other jurisdiction following suit. So, you know, could we have had them? Should we have them? Yes and yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, is there any evidence that rapid testing actually slows down or reduces transmission? Because provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, very recently just said that rapid tests are not a tool that can be used to prevent transmission. So I'm, I'm just confused as to, you know, are they effective? Are they not effective? Is there evidence to show that they have slowed down transmission? Well, I think it's good to talk about evidence. I am not an epidemiologist or a virologist. Neither am I, by so the way, just I, FYI. You know, but, what you know, I looked to Dr. Michael Mena, and I, I, you know, I used some of his research even in question period last year in, in the House. Uh, he is world-renowned. He is a Harvard medical professor, so definitely has the credentials, a, you know, PhD and a medical degree. Mm -hmm. And he has been been 
absolutely leading the charge on rapid tests worldwide. So, you know, you look at his information at all of the studies that he's done, and his answer would be yes, it does break the chains of transmission. And then you look at how they're being used, whether it's the premier at a dinner, you know, meeting, uh, you know, in the spring, or whether mm. it's looking at Christian Freeland and, and Minister Freeland, and how she, you know, deployed them when, you know, to all of her staff and caught two that were, uh, that were infected that were unknown, or the UBC study that came out last May where they tested over 3,000 students and one of their findings was that they actually broke, and I quote, 28 chains of transmission. So, uh, you know, I do believe that they're very effective, especially now when we need them against Omicron. Yes, we have vaccination and, you know, I am fully vaccinated, mm -hmm. but as a fully vaccinated individual, I don't know where I'm at in terms of, of, of how much immunity I still have. You know, I'm five months out. I'm five months away from my last, you know, my last dose. So I, it gives me a great sense of, of ease if I know that I can, you know, take my tests. And I actually tweeted out um, back in uh, around Thanksgiving, I was jealous watching Nova Scotia and seeing, you know, some of these like, here's Johnny, here's Jill's and here's mine and here's Derek's and, you know, and now we're going to go off to, you know, grandma and grandpa's. And I think about that. I think about my parents and my in-laws and, you know, I don't want to, you know, to be carrying the, the virus to them any more than anyone else does. And a rapid test is an easy way for us to give a that way. Now, we've both established that neither of us are scientists or epidemiologists. <laughs> True. However, when you were raising these concerns, and I think they are fair concerns, especially considering your former role as the critic for health, what was the response? What were you hearing back? Um, largely discounting it. You know, first was, uh, you know, these are not licensed for this use. Then it was, well, you know, you need training to actually deploy them. It's too expensive. Then it was, well, you need machines to deploy them. And I do think that there we've come a long way. Mm -hmm. And we've been learning around, you know, along the way uh, with different methodologies and different technologies coming. But when we got the big, you know, the big mother load from the feds uh, in terms of of three, three million tests, those were ready to be deployed. And, and you two million of them the are just sitting there. Is that correct? Two million are just sitting there. What's the rationale that you're getting back when you're bringing up these concerns that they're that we should just have them sitting that there? that they're too hard to separate that they're, you know, that they're difficult to, you know, to deploy that it's expensive, you know, that the feds give them to us, but they don't actually use them. And it's I've heard all sorts of excuses. And the reality is that we are now creating another divide, another have and have nots because those with means can order them mm -hmm. you can order them online but now you're paying for them and it might right. cost you a hundred dollars you know to test your entire family or it might cost a business fifty dollars or you know a uh, hundred and fifty dollars to test their employees so now we're creating this divide of those who have and can order their tests from alberta you know we're not talking about ordering them from foreign countries and sure. not being good we're talking the same ones <laughs> that the feds are, are using you can buy them you know and 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 it does give a great, great um, peace of mind. Yeah. You know, my daughter attends University of Victoria and with the outbreak, she's in the middle of finals and, you know, she got a little concerned about what am I going to do, Ma? And, 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 uh, and it's like, okay, well, you can, you can book a test. Well, no, you can't because I don't have any symptoms. I'm fully vaccinated. How will right. I know? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's an easy, simple, rapid test that if she could get it at her pharmacy would be so much better. And so one of the things I've been hearing is that if we make rapid tests widely available, it's actually going to discourage people from getting the PCR test. Or worse yet, it might even discourage people from getting vaccinated because they might think, well, or, or getting their booster, because they might think, oh, well, I'm seeing grandma, 
but uh, you know, I'm not vaccinated. I'll just take one of these rapid tests and, and I'll do that and I'll, I'll clear it and then I'll go see grandma. So is there any credence to that, that, that rapid tests might discourage uh, PCR testing, which is apparently more reliable or even vaccinations? Well, I would say that a carpenter, just because you put a wrench in his tool or her tool belt is not going to not use the hammer as well. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that it, that's absurd. You know, we, we use a pen for certain things and a pencil for certain things. We need to deploy all of the resources, especially against this new variant. We need to, to actually allow people to take that responsibility and to encourage it. And I'm just so encouraged to see all of the people demanding rapid tests because it does say that we, we still are in that mode of we want to keep people safe. Yeah. We're not throwing off the boundaries and, and saying, no, I don't want to be vaccinated and no, I don't want to be. No, we want it all, right? Like give it all to us because that's going to be how we keep each other safe. So, you know, in other jurisdictions, you use the rapid test as a screening tool you go for the pcr test if it comes out, out positive mm -hmm. it's simple and you know you look at places like denmark they're about 50 50 in terms of of uh, rapid tests and then pcr tests but mm. they're doing about four hundred and fifty thousand tests a day with a similar population to bc and how many are we doing Ten thousand a day on oh. average okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. we are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with renee merrifield renee thanks for sticking around oh it's my pleasure this is a very timely topic that we're, that we're discussing. I get a little weird with it just personally, because obviously, as, as we mentioned, like, I'm not a scientist, you're not a scientist, we're not epidemiologists. And so it becomes very hard for me to really criticize the, the government or certainly Dr. Bonnie Henry on her decisions. And I, you know, support which her expertise, obviously, in making this, these decisions. But this topic in particular on rapid testing has really been a, a head scratcher for me. And I'm starting to see even other people in the media and, and people that, you know, say, su you know, support Dr. Henry and, and let's all do this together. Even they're kind of scratching their head and going, what are we doing? And, and is it just a matter of us kind of looking around at what other jurisdictions are doing and not getting a, a proper explanation? Well, you know, I like that you brought up the aspect of, of an epidemiologist or, you know, a virologist and uh, even public health, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the reality is all these are sciences and, um, and expertise, but none of them are perfect. In mm -hmm. fact, science loves the rigor of debate. Science loves the rigor of new information coming. And, uh, and it's built around actually bringing about new information. I mean, journals would, would go out of business if they didn't have new information and new studies coming in mm -hmm. to say, oh, wait, what we thought was true is no longer true. I think what we have right now are other jurisdictions that are doing something very different than what we're doing. Yeah. And when it's that black and white, like they have the same test that we have, but they're getting it for free in a grocery store or a liquor store, and we're not getting them at all. Yeah. That's where it gets, we all take pause, right? And with the new threat, right? I, I mean, you said it just in your intro, Omicron has changed the dynamic again, mm -hmm. because now we're seeing something and the headlines are all over the map. And, you know, there's a lot of fear out there again. And this would just be one more little tool that we could use to really keep each other safe and empower people and really have them take that personal responsibility to keep each other safe. And I think that's what's so confusing. Like, again, most people in British Columbia who are eligible to be vaccinated are vaccinated. I think BC on the whole is pro-vaccine. And, you know, I did bring up the point that, oh, maybe it discourages people from getting vaccinated or discourages people from taking the PCR test. But 
ultimately, we've been working in BC on this idea that these are all layers of protection. And so why don't we deploy this layer, especially when we have inventory? And I understand, you know, we have to break down the kits and whatever. But again, Nova Scotia was doing that in September. Why can't we just start now and say, listen, we're pivoting our strategy. Yeah, we're going to try to get out as many as possible. We're bringing in volunteers. We're doing this and that. Okay. It, like, am I silly for being this confused? No. And I'll respond on two fronts. One is right now we have, as a society, given really carte blanche to our provincial government to spend money on eradicating COVID. Yeah. Like we have, you know, very little information or scrutiny on how much money was spent mm-hmm. on the rollout of our vaccines or on treatment in, in our hospitals, et cetera. There's just, there's a, there's kind of a void, but that's okay because the federal government has stepped up and given all the provinces money. The you know the provinces have done the job flying blind and really trying to really trying to create the plane as they fly. Yeah. So there has been a lot of grace given in this particular situation, right? So was it possible? Absolutely, it was. Should we have been ordering them sooner? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I also want to go back to something else though that you said earlier, which is you know on the vaccine front, and I want to remind us that there are people walking around today that have that little mark on their arms, mm-hmm. and some of us that were born after that time frame that don't. Why? Because we eradicated the virus. Our bodies, our you know our vaccination process in that time frame got rid of it. Yeah. The the goal is not that we all take as many vaccines as we possibly can. The goal is to get rid of the diseases and the viruses completely. So why wouldn't we want to use every tool in the toolbox? If we all had rapid tests and we all stayed home when we were sick and, and that quelled the transmission... We would be, you know, out of that home stretch and we would actually be able to kill the virus. Sure. So I think that there are, you know, using every tool in the toolbox, it doesn't negate one just because you use another, mm-hmm. you know, uh, treatment options out of the hospital. You know, where are we on that? How can we move forward on that? We've got new drugs coming out with Pfizer and Merck. And, you know, there will be other things that we will be able to use. And along the way, I don't think we should be beholden to anyone over another. I think we need to use all of them at our disposal. Sure. I'm going to ask you a question, and I and I want you to know that it is with good intent. Okay. Right? Wow. If you have to preface it with that, <laughs> I know, <mode. laughs> I know. But I, I was thinking about how to phrase this okay. because I think you are extremely qualified to be in office. I think you are highly intelligent. I can disagree with you on things, but I think you belong there. And clearly, in a lot of your work, especially you know this rapid testing thing, I think you've done a great job. I'm just curious, like as a rookie MLA to be put in the critic portfolio for health, which is probably the biggest file in the province right now mm-hmm. and, and was when, when you were there at least, like that must be so overwhelming, right? Like you're kind of learning the ropes of just how the BC Ledge works in during a pandemic where there's different rules now. And, and then you, you're tossed this huge file. Like how did you kind of approach this monumental task? And especially in, a, in an era where you know, we're we're not really actively going after public health officials or really trying to criticize them too much. We're just trying to ask questions and raise concerns. Like, what was your approach? So I would never, my job is not to criticize the public health. In fact, just the opposite. Mm -hmm. My job is to hold government to account because public health is not an elected official. Public Mm -hmm. health is, you know, they they work for the government and they give information to the government. The government makes decisions. So I was really careful to make sure I always directed any questions I had and any pressure that I, you know, that we were delivering 
gathering on behalf of citizens. So even the rapid test question that I asked on December 8th, I was actually quoting in one of those questions, Isabel McKenzie, who is a seniors advocate. Mm -hmm. Why? Because she was asking for rapid tests to be deployed in all of the long-term care facilities. So making sure that my voice was an amplification. So just a little bit about me, though. I'll take a step backwards. Just a little bit about me. Um, So I was an Interior Health Authority board member for a number of years. So in terms of being inside of the the health system, Mm -hmm. I had a fairly good handle on, on on the business aspect, on the bureaucracy of the system. And yes, I'm not a health professional, but definitely inside of the system. I, I understood that. Okay. Um, but and then I also, you know, I'm I'm someone who loves to learn. So I didn't just approach it and say, "Oh, I'm just going to wing it," and you know, best of luck to me. No, no, no. <laughs> I so I dug in. You know, I said I was drinking from a fire hose, trying not to drown. And COVID became the freight train that I was ho- trying to hold back while in flip flops on sand. Yeah. So definitely was 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 trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And so I went out. I went and relied on those around me that are experts. And I created my own little like mini Renee committee of experts in every single field, mm. the epidemiologists, the virologists, the microbiologists who had worked on mRNA D, D, like vaccinations and who could give me information. And so, you know, I definitely had my little COVID committee. And when I say it's little, it's only four people, but four experts in their fields, all university professors or, or uh, public health officers uh, that are retired, etc., and had worked in pandemics. But then I also took um, the wealth of knowledge that we had on our caucus. Mm. You know, uh, Shirley Bond, our our interim leader and um, amazing MLA, uh, you know, she had been the, you know, the health minister at one time. Um, You know, Terry Lake was another one I reached out to a couple of times to get information from him, like, what do you think about this? Or what do you, you know, where are you at on that? And again, as another expert in his field on the seniors care. And then Norm, I mean, Norm Latnick, MLA from from Colonial Lake Country. Uh, (laughs) You know, we're we're side by each uh, in our writings, but we're also side by each in our offices. And I mean, he gave me binders that he had collected over the course of the three years of him serving as health critic that were a wealth of information. And then it was connect, 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 and get myself out there as much as possible. My, you know, legislative assistant said I, I took more meetings with with organizations, associations, and people who had health concerns around BC than she had ever seen before. Um, and that was largely because I was just gaining that information and that brain trust of trying to move our province forward with healthcare. Cool. And I appreciate you answering that. And again, I was certainly not questioning your background or educational <laughs> qualifications. I want to be very clear. Yeah. It was mostly just, you know, that is a tall task for for anyone, let alone first-time MLA. Yeah. And and so it was a big challenge, and that's what I was curious about, how you actually tackled that challenge. I feel like you missed someone in terms of people that that apparently mentored you, because in the third BC Liberal debate, Michael <laughs> Lee said that he was one of your mentors. Yeah, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a ton of respect for Michael, uh, you know, obviously a, a fellow colleague, and I, I'm going to look forward to working with him. Yeah. Um, but I think I phrased my question at the beginning with he's been very singularly focused over the mm. course of the last year. And so I have not gotten to know him in uh, in the ways that I would like to as a colleague. And uh, and I was I was definitely uh, I think I, I had a perfect record in the house uh, up until I, I, I took one leave day out of out of my entire uh, my entire session. So definitely. Definitely tried to make sure that I I had the priorities aligned uh, correctly, which is first and foremost, I am an MLA and I represent the Kelowna Mission Riding. Absolutely. Now, let's switch gears to this BC Liberal leadership race. There are seven candidates, could have been eight. (laughs) Yeah. You're the only woman. Just from your own experience in the race so far, 
Has that identity distinction been pronounced for you or has it not mattered? Uh, I would say that that there are two two different there's the there's the there's the conscious bias <laughs> of some individuals who just don't believe that women still should be leaders, even though we've had a female premier. Uh, and then there's the unconscious biases, which are, are a little bit more difficult to see. I would say, though, uh, in my business life, I always said, you know, it doesn't matter if someone feels, you know, some way about me. I'm going to I'm going to earn it on merit. I'm going to earn it by by being great at what I do mm-hmm. and by making sure that I, I stand out. And, you know, I've often in, in speaking engagements, etc said, you know, I've used it as as something that differentiates me, right? Um, if you ask anyone about, oh, hey, that that uh, developer that's from the Okanagan, um, they'll go, who? I don't know. And they'll start naming them all, right? <laughs> if you say that female developer from the Okanagan, oh, Renee. Right. Um, so for me, it's, it's always been something that I felt like I could use to, you know, to distinguish myself, mm. to be uh, someone who stood out amongst, you know, uh, typically male-dominated industries. And whether it was in farming or whether that was in, um, or whether that was in development or in construction, you know, I wore a pink hard hat on the, on the job site. Why? Because it differentiated me. That's the Christy Clark. <laughs> special too oh i don't think you ever wore pink i don't think you ever wore pink and mine's legit like i wear okay. mine on a daily basis it's in my car because when i have to get to site i want to be safe so high vis vest safety helmet and and have my heart my my steel-toed shoes so fair enough now you brought up this idea of there being two types of bias unconscious and conscious biases have you experienced them in the course of the race it, has it been a theme for you what, what like i'm just curious about your experience you know, being the sole female in uh, a race uh, amongst men, basically. I probably haven't thought as much about being a female as I have in this race, to be honest. Is I, that right? I took my, I, I, you know, I, I said to my my um, my shareholders um, the other day, like I, I took our culture for granted. I really did. I took I took what we had created together for granted, and mm-hmm. I took the business community out there for granted because you don't see gender as much anymore. You don't see race as much anymore. You don't think about religions as much anymore. Like there is just this openness to diversity mm-hmm. that really uh, is very different in politics still, and needs to be and needs to be broken down. Um, you know, we only have in the BC Liberals twenty five percent female. The NDP have fifty one percent female. They actually mirror what the population of BC is almost mm-hmm. exactly, right? So for me, it's it's disappointing that there's only fourteen percent females up on a stage as well. Which means we need to do a better job of championing great women who are able to do the job yeah. instead of you know instead of kind of aligning ourselves with what we know, which are the you know, the clubs or associations or the camaraderie that we've we've known all along. Yeah. Do you think in the course of the debate and just the discussions through this leadership race that there's been enough focus on creating more of that gender balance? I mean, there have been some discussions about diversity, but setting that aside, specifically talking about attracting women into candidate positions or just being more involved with the party do you think that there's been enough and enough of a focus on that and i i wouldn't say that i would focus on it i would focus on the holistic 
aspect of diversity, mm-hmm. right? Like because I think gender needs to be one part of that conversation. I think orientation needs to be a part of that conversation. I think that race needs to be a part of that conversation. I think that education backgrounds. Uh, we already have MLAs that are diverse geographically right. <laughs> because of the sure. boundaries that they are elected from. So I do think that we need to have that diversity conversation, and that needs to encompass everything. So I wouldn't select gender or just women um, in, in general as as being the one that we need to look at the most. Fair enough. Um, yeah. But having said that, you know, it's been interesting to see my campaign team because they, you know, they've commented, wow, we, we've heard things about, you know, being a female in politics. We, we, we knew that they were true, but seeing it firsthand hmm. is unreal, like unreal, just in terms well, of how... What- sort of things surprise them? Uh, just how women are treated um, in terms of what's said about them, what's, you know, even some but of you're the, the comments. Wo- but you're the woman in question here. So, so explain what you're talking okay, about. Okay, so I'll give one example. Um, on the first debate, uh, all of a sudden, there was a person that was on the, the Facebook feed, the Facebook chat. And if you go back now, they've actually removed it. The <laughs> party did a great job. But it was, it, and you know what? Kudos, kudos to my MLA colleagues, because when I got like got off, you know, from the debate stage and looked at my phone, it was actually on the MLA chat that our our chat group that other MLAs were saying, "Get that guy off of there! Hmm. Like this is wrong. Who? Somebody needs to stop him." Oh wow! And okay. he was just trashing women, and hmm. um, and some of my <laughs> my poor mom, she's like, "Renee, don't listen to what they say about you." <laughs> You can be anything you want. And I mean, absolutely adorable. And, and I'm so privileged with the parents that I have who did tell me, Renee, you can be anything you want. Just yeah. be good at it. Just be, you know, be your best. Be your best. Don't compare yourself to other people. So I am very privileged from that perspective. But there was no one else saying like, you know, you know, we should never have an indigenous leader. We should never have a Chinese leader. There mm. should be a, like, there was nothing else. No men. Like, I don't have the feminist group of, you know, of Canada coming out and saying like, you know, only women. Like, no, that just doesn't happen. But this person was attacking me as a female. Right. So has it been more sort of these isolated single singular incidences or i'm just i'm just trying to get your a feel for your experience because i know that um, that you just said that your team sees things a lot differently yeah or, it's it, hard yeah it's hard being a woman in politics it really is it's not an area that has equalized itself yet um you don't have a lot of females at the top who are who are able to cheer on that next group of females or the group of men at the top who are willing to cheer on that next group of, of females. So it's, it's difficult, but uh, you know, and, and maybe because I am Caucasian, I don't experience the racial aspect of politics. I'm sure that it would be shared as well, mm-hmm. you know, that it would be difficult to be other ethnicities uh, and that it would be difficult to be other orientations and be there. So I, you know, I, I, I can only represent what I have experienced. I can't represent what others have experienced, but I definitely, because of my experience, believe that I can make a more welcoming environment for everyone. Right. And that I would champion. I would be the one. I know it takes 19 times. 19 times you have to ask a woman to run, and it takes two <laughs> on average for a man. Oh, is that right? So I, I would. I would be that squeaky wheel. I wouldn't just say, well, I've already asked her twice, and she said no. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, no, what do you need? How can I support you? Where do you, where are you at? And you know, someone at a meet and greet recently said, and she happened, um, she happened to be 
you know, a, a very highly trained professional. And she was like, women are so busy. <laughs> where are you mm. going to even find them? And I was like, you go to where they are. You start attending PAC meetings. You start going to the women in business meetings. You attend the executive network clubs. You, you get to where they are yeah. and find them so that you can actually champion them forward. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I feel like recruitment for any large organization is always a push-pull strategy, right? Pushing in terms of like, you're really trying to get them to come on board and then pull, you're creating the environment that, oh, you know, they would actually want to be there. I guess the reason that that I'm talking about this specifically is my colleague, often on This Is Van Color, Katie Merrifield, uh, on Political Capital, also on Check, she noted that the low point for the BC Liberals this year was the incident where a senior member of Kevin Falcon's team, uh, in a very misogynistic way, berated and harassed Kevin, uh, sorry, Michael Lee's campaign manager, who is a woman. And, you know, Katie noted that this was completely, obviously unacceptable. And she noted that as being this, you know, very terrible moment that that has to be reflected on. And, and even Michael Lee has talked about bringing, you know, a code of ethics into either leadership races or into the party as a whole. And so I just wonder, like, is that, has that moment created the momentum to really examine within your party or within anyone else's party of our, is the culture welcoming for women? Well, I think it only does when it's brought to light, right? And I have to commend Diamond on her bravery. That is, um, it's, it's a, it is a huge risk. You know, I was talking um, with a, with a friend, you know, just recently. And I said like that, I can list three other women who have stepped forward um, when they have have experienced exactly that and and way worse in you know in politics and I can tell you their careers have been destroyed like even though mm-hmm. it was found that they were that what they said was true yeah. uh, you know and justice was brought forward they are still reaping the consequences of it yeah. and you know so I you know it's real. It is mm-hmm. real. And I hate to say it. And it's it, not limited to it's just not, your party. And I, was, I want to be clear as you. well. Yeah. Thank you. I was just about, <laughs> you took the words literally out of my mouth because it's not. It is part of something that has happened inside of politics. Mm-hmm. It is like, you know, I use the I use the line in, I think, one of my debates, but I say like, you know, what happens, you know, on a, on a school playground is called bullying what happens inside of a business environment is called chauvinism Mm. but what happens in politics is called politics and um that's wrong yeah it's wrong it's wrong to treat someone with disrespect regardless of who they are where they are uh what race they are what gender they are it's wrong it's wrong to you know to uh have this different uh ethic that you don't have to adhere to. Mm. You know, it's it's just wrong. And part of the reason that I'm running was I was driving home from Vic- Vancouver and I like I had had it. I'd had it with the cheap shots that were taken by media or, you know, having a an NDP strategist as the key, you know, the key quote uh, against me in a in an article and it was like mm. I had I, I was like, well, I don't need this. Like, I don't need this. I know who I am. I know what I do. I know what my heart is. I know what my heart is for BC. I know, I know what I've accomplished in my life. I have had success. I've been so blessed. But what I would say is as I was driving, it was like, yeah, but if you want something to be different, 
you have to be the change. Mm. Like you have to be willing to be that change. You have to be willing to stand up. You know, and and there are things that happen in in the house uh, on the op- opposing sides that need to be brought attention. And I uh, I celebrated MLA Jackie Taggart when she actually tweeted out the the note that she got from Minister uh, Simons. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that is inappropriate it's inappropriate at any time but for so long we just said oh don't worry about it well you know we give it we take it like it's okay like it's okay and it's like this is not okay anywhere else like it's just not okay and it doesn't make you weak it actually makes you strong so it's like yeah stand up stand up and say no that is not appropriate that gesture is not appropriate it's not appropriate if we were in a boardroom and it's not appropriate here and it's not appropriate on a job site and it's not appropriate in a restaurant like it's just (laughs) not appropriate and uh and until we start standing up for each other and for what's true and right and good and how we all should be treated, how we all should be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not going to happen. You're always very passionate, but I think this is the most (laughs) fired up I've seen you. This is great. Uh, uh, I apologize. (laughs) No, don't apologize. That is welcome. That is no, no, no. That that's what this is for. Well, and you know what? To any of your listeners um, who, uh, who have experienced any form of discrimination, um, I just say like, yeah, I'm sorry, and we are standing. Like, we are standing up. There are those of us that will stand and stand against it and get rid of it and get rid of it in our parties, get rid of it in in politics, get rid of it everywhere. Yeah. Still sticking to the BC Liberal leadership race, but kind of an aside, the late entry, Stan Sipos, Hall of Famer, drag racer, kind of weird right like his candidacy is kind of weird i'm sure he's a nice guy but i just his parachuting into this race is a bit of a head scratcher because when this was announced or when the rumors were were going around i asked sort of my contacts in the vc liberal party like who is this guy i've never heard of him do you have some background on him and no one knew anything about him and he's just there now on the debate stage is that is that weird? Like <laughs> from the outside, it is, but it is a little bit strange. It's like you know, uh, Renee Merrifield has been involved with the BC Liberal Party since the '90s. You know, John Weisbeck, MLA for Kelowna Lake Country, uh, you know, sat me down when I was young, you know, in my early 20s, and was like, "You need to get involved with politics, and you need to create jobs." And I was like, "Okay," and so I did. All right, and and right after that, in 2001, was the almost clean sweep with the BC Liberals coming in with 75 out of 77 ridings I think it was Mm -hmm. so like I have and I've served on three different riding associations I have uh, you know served under the premier's economic council I've been on the interior health authority board like I've been involved in fundraisers I've been involved in membership drives you know so many BC liberals would have heard my voice as it's like hey it's time to you know up that uh, that membership so you know I'm someone who's a known entity within our party it's not surprising that I became an MLA it's not surprising that I'm running um, so it, it is a little bit um, it is a little bit strange to have someone that I have never heard of I can mm. I can honestly say I had heard of every single other candidate that mm-hmm. that stands on that stage for a variety of reasons right I mean we have we have three that are not sitting MLAs right now but I've heard of their I've heard of them I've, sure. I've heard of who they are and, and their reputations and their experience so for me it is it's odd um, and, and 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 I you know I'm someone who always wants to think the best and 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 look forward so it's you know I'm hoping that the silver lining is that it'll be this you know kind of shock event that will you know have everyone pay attention and 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 
be something interesting. Um, but I was surprised that I'd never heard of them. Yeah, and and I'm I've been in the development world for 25 years. Yeah, and I'd never heard of them, so it was it was a shock on both fronts. Like someone in my industry that I don't know, and as well someone in the party that I don't know. Well, from the little that I've seen, what I can say what what I can say about Stan Sipos is that he's very bold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We can leave it at that. <laughs> very. And just as we as we wrap up here. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to explain exactly what this leadership is really about and why you're the best person to be the next leader of the BC Liberals and possibly the next Premier of British Columbia. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. You didn't tell me that that was going to be a question, so thank you. Um, I really took a look at the slate, and I was one of the later arrivals as well. And I took a look at the slate, and for me, I, I, as I had listened to people around British Columbia, I, I heard two things. One is that we need someone who has charisma, passion, and, uh, and can take us forward. Someone who can actually, you know, breathe new life into where we are today. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. So we do need something different. Um, the second thing that, uh, that I thought we really needed was a leader was someone who had leadership experience. And I don't use that in just a, you know, a kind of a, a, a you know, motherhood statement. Um, like there's, someone <laughs> there's, there's an acting class above. I don't know if oh. that rattles into the microphones, but okay. thankfully it wasn't on the TV segment. Sorry. Okay, good, good. Sorry for that um, interruption. No, 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 it's good. Um, but, uh, but the second thing is that leadership. And that is one thing that I have done for 25 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, last night in the debate, I, I acknowledged that I have 25 years of leading organizations to a win, mm-hmm. not just one organization, not just one company, uh, but we're talking 31 of my own companies. I've been, I've served on on dozens of boards and done things in the nonprofit sector, in the private sector, as well as, um, you know, like claim, you know, Things that we've done very successfully, uh, Lois Nahirni and I, um, uh, she was as chair, I was vice chair of the Premier's Women's Economic Council. We, you know, started the We For She movement. It was this, you know, we, we started all the conferences as well as started looking at policy and mm-hmm. all policy through all lenses. So it, you know, there was such a dynamic um, success story behind even an organization that started up and had a very short, you know, very short runway to do something that that was really good and that had huge results. So for me, I'm results oriented. I'm very pragmatic. I understand the grassroots level of policy and how it affects people's lives, as well as I can lead organizations. I can build teams. You know, my success story is not that I built a great company. It's that the team is still there running the company mm-hmm. and I'm not there. At the Christmas party, I actually stood up and said, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that we did so well because <laughs> you did so well without me. And, uh, you know, as much as I said, I, I did say that kind of tongue in cheek and to be, you know, to be funny, but it was like, wow, they're really thriving without me at the helm. Um, and they are, and they are because you built succession and that's yeah. what our party needs. We need to lay tracks for the next leaders. We need to see who they are. We need to build into them. We need to, we need to inspire the next generations. We need to get excited about what the BC Liberals do really well and how we can do it well as a, as a caucus, how we can hold government to account in opposition, and then be the government in waiting, because in 2024, we can win. I love that. And I, and I appreciate your time. I know that I wanted you to be on the show at some point, And I think we got the timing right in terms of the, <laughs> the topic. But, yeah. you know, 
as as you carry out the the home stretch of this BC Liberal leadership race, I wish you the best of luck. I hope people do take a, a look at you and your candidacy because I think uh, you're an extremely credible, qualified candidate, and uh, you've brought a a different dimension into this race that was really needed. So thank, thank you. you for that. And, and thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for your voice. Folks, she is BCMLA for Kelowna Mission, the former official opposition critic for health and a current BC Liberal leadership candidate. If you are a BC Liberal member as of December 17th in a campaign that concludes on February 5th, 2022, she is absolutely worth your consideration. She is Renee Merrifield. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.